Hey, it's Leah. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to tell you about this other show called Stuff the British Stole. It's from CBC Podcast and Australia Radio National, and it's got all the story elements I love. It's got colonial theft. It's got museums denying that theft. It's got intrigue. It's got jokes by Australians. Join host Mark Fresnel as he picks one artifact and takes you on the wild, evocative, sometimes funny, and often tragic adventure of how it got to where it is today. Check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, so I think I have an idea about where we're going today. Oh, and you know that I am excited about this one, Expo 67. And I want to say, you know, when I started working on this one, it was actually supposed to be a shorter episode, a crash course. Um, But then I just kept finding all these interesting things and I wanted to share them. So this is part one of another two-parter. And I know season three has been a lot of two-parters, but, you know, sometimes when you scratch the surface of these things, you just keep finding really interesting things that you want to share. Absolutely right. We did a two-parter on Ganesatake, sometimes called the Oka mm-hmm. Crisis, and a two-parter on the history of the RCMP. And honestly, there is so much to talk about when it comes to Expo 67, which took place in Montreal. Um, but for those who might not know, Expo 67 was a universal and international exhibition. And it was also part of Canada's uh, centennial celebrations when Canada turned 100 in 1967. Right. These world exhibitions or world fairs seem like, you know, to me, part fair, part arts festival, part international parte. It's a whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's sort of the perfect way to describe it. And there are so many things that we could talk about, you know, from the fact that Jackie O, JFK's widow, attended mm-hmm. or that the Supremes, the original Destiny's Child, played on the Ed Sullivan show, which that's filmed right. at Expo 67 or that the Canadian Pavilion was modeled after an ashtray. <laughs> okay that's so 1967 already mm-hmm. like oh we love our smokes why don't we model the entire canadian pavilion about that so that's a lot to talk about i'm excited yes, yes it is okay but there's this one thing this one aspect that i felt needed to be looked at a little deeper and that is the indian pavilion or the indians of canada pavilion it was actually called that but i just kind of hate saying those words right indians of canada sounds first of all, very possessive, like Indigenous people weren't here until Canada arrived. And also, obviously, you know, the term Indian is not mm-hmm. one that we use, even though I've just said it twice. But <laughs> this is what this podcast makes me do. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yes. And while we're on the subject of language, yes, Indian is going to be a thing here, but we don't use that word casually. It's in the context of history. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It's always good to have that disclaimer. So the Indians of Canada Pavilion, it was a huge moment for Indigenous contemporary art. How and in what way our works were shown. It was also a massive moment for Indigenous people to assert power in how they were viewed. And Expo was really male-dominated, but I want to look at some of the Indigenous women who contributed to Expo because their story has largely been left out. All right, Leah, are you ready to head to the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67? I'm ready. Let's do it. If you would hop on to the official Expo monorail, the mini rail, as it is called, we can get going. 
Okay, and if we're actually going to do this, I actually would not trust you to drive a monorail. So let's let's put it an imaginary driver, okay? Just be in the little container thing with me. Oh, no, I'm driving. Oh, <laughs> I can't drive in real life, so I might as well drive in my dreams. Or we could take a hovercraft if you prefer. No, this is probably a better choice, <laughs> I guess. Okay, so here we go. So as we pass through the expo grounds, we can see some of the pavilions. Uh, that geodesic dome over there, that is the American Pavilion. And it's actually one of the very few remaining structures from expo. Oh, and uh, now it's uh, actually the Montreal Biosphere, and it's a museum dedicated to the environment. Okay. Now we are crossing over from Ile St. Helen to Ile Notre Dame, uh, and we can see the pavilion for the USSR over there. And, Leah, fun fact... Russia actually won the bid to be the host nation for Expo 67, but they pulled out and Canada took over. Oh, my gosh. I have a feeling you're going to say fun fact a lot today. Fun fact, yes. <laughs> it was probably a good thing for Canada that the USSR dropped out, seeing as 1967 was our centennial. So yes. it kind of, it's a nice... Yeah. It was good timing for Canada, for sure. But this would have been in the middle of the Cold War, right? Which was, at the time, mainly between Russia and America. So it kind of seems strange to me that the Russians would even attend this because, you know. I thought so too, but these events, you know, events like a World's Fair or expositions, they were mostly apolitical in a lot of ways. You know, it was more of a celebration of humanity. Like the Olympics. Yes, similar to. Um, the USSR had a really successful pavilion, though. Um, I think it had the highest attendance. And the Russians, they spent the most money on their pavilion only next to Canada. So were the Russians showing off a bit of flex with a move like that? Uh, that's kind of what it seemed like to me, um, you know, but we can't really know who was flexing and, you know, who wasn't. Well, I mean, sometimes you can literally tell who's flexing and who isn't. <laughs> okay, okay. And usually yes, it is Russians. Like, if it's the Olympics, <laughs> I'm going to generalize. They do a good job at that. <laughs> that is true. All right. So the theme of Expo 67 was man and his world. They could have workshopped that title a little more, I think. I think it's, so. It's uh, pretty limiting. I don't love that title. And I do think it's kind of funny because what we will find out through this episode is that, like, a lot of the women who were at Expo 67 did a lot of the heavy lifting. But the theme, Man in His World, it kind of made things pretty wide open for interpretation. A lot of previous World's Fairs or expositions, they had very narrow focuses or themes. The Expo was a massive endeavor, and there was some skepticism if Expo could come together fast enough. And, you know, the city needed to do a lot of stuff in terms of infrastructure. They actually needed to make space for Expo. So they decided to add to the existing Ile St. Helen and build an additional island. Okay, right. That reminds me of that heritage moment where they're talking about Expo 67. Yes, that's the one. Hey, Gabe, we're supposed to be at City Hall. We're going to build it right here. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. And give wetsuits to all the visitors? <laughs> no, on the water. Hey, come on. We're talking about building something the size of 64 city blocks. And there's no land left in Montreal. So, get serious. Listen! We'll build islands. How? Dig up Montreal? <laughs> <laughs> They're digging a subway, remember? You take it from there, and you put it here. So basically what was going on um, was there was an existing island, Ile St. Helen, and they wanted to extend that island, so they used fill from the subway that was being built then, the metro. Ile Notre Dame was actually didn't exist 
prior to this. They built that island for Expo. Okay, wow. That's a lot of... Huh. Building an entire island, I didn't realize it was that huge, but interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the preparations had started late because the USSR had dropped out. So things were already pretty behind in terms of the planning, but they did it. And Expo was on time and it was ready to open on April 28th, 1967. And uh, Leah, if uh, you'll look over to your left, there is the Mm -hmm. Jamaica Pavilion, which I read was kind of just like a giant bar that served rum cocktails. Sounds about right. (laughs) Oh, look over there, Leah. There's Guyana and the Barbados Pavilion. Okay, so that's really interesting. Those are connected buildings. And when I found out that you were going to do this Expo 67 episode... I decided to ask around my family members, like, who did anyone go? And it turns out my dad was in Canada when Expo 67 happened. And he went to the Guyanese Pavilion, which obviously was attached to the Barbados Pavilion. That's why he was there. And he said that the thing about the Guyanese Pavilion, which was really hilarious that sticks out in his mind, is that they had this parrot that was like the feature of the Guyanese Pavilion. They actually had put this parrot on their stamps. Because, you know, a lot of countries that came to the 67 Expo, you know, like commemorative stamps, commemorative coins. So this parrot was on these stamps. The problem was, is when they were building the pavilions, a lot of countries got there before when they were building them. The parrot was on site when the construction workers were putting the pavilion together and the construction workers, you know, were talking how they would usually talk on a construction site. They were swearing a lot. They were using a lot of maybe uh, (laughs) things that you wouldn't (laughs) say when you're greeting people at an expo. The parrot picked it up. And so when people were walking into the Guyanese pavilion, the parrot was telling them off So they ended up having to pull the parrot, the parrot that they had put on all their stamps and everything they had to pull. And so that's the thing that stuck out. That's what he remembered about Expo 67 was this swearing parrot. Now that is a heritage moment. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Where's that? (laughs) Yeah. There were around 100 pavilions, so I'm sure stories like that exist throughout all of these pavilions. Like, there was probably all these, like, wacky and strange things going on. Um, Mm -hmm. But these pavilions, they were there representing nations, companies, industries, and, you know, some religious groups. At Expo, there were concerts, there were film screenings, sports events, and even a rodeo. Uh, There was also, oh, God, I saw this. uh, I've seen video of it, and it haunts my dreams. There were these clowns. Like, there were clowns everywhere. But there were clowns in boats doing, like, clown routines with motorized (laughs) boats. Yeah, so we could have been taking one of those instead of the mini rail. So count yourself lucky that we don't have, like, Bozo the drunk clown driving us around. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Clowns. Clowns everywhere. Okay. Ah, but let's continue on, shall we? Uh, Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so over there you will see the steel and pulp and paper pavilions. Oh, they sound fun. <laughs> I know. Can you imagine if your parents were like, and now we're going to the steel pavilion? Well, I'm, I'm assuming like, that if Jamaica was giving out rum and there were also steel and paper pulp pavilions, I know which one was packed and which one was really empty. So It's true. It's true. And up here you will see the Canada pavilion, which was called Katimovic, which is an Inuktitut word that means meeting place. Was there no Inuit pavilion or Métis pavilion? No, that was, this is the ashtray I was telling you about. Oh. Um, 
So the the inspiration actually for the Canada Pavilion, um, the architects who were working on it, they were brainstorming ideas and they were smoking a ton of cigarettes because it was the 60s. And they filled up an ashtray and they looked at it and that's where Canada Pavilion <laughs> So it's came like from. Canada's meeting place, an ashtray. That's nice. An overflowing <laughs> ashtray. And then they named it after an Inuit word, which is all kinds of complicated. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But there weren't really many, like, there weren't many representations of Inuit or Métis people specifically. You know, the official mascot of the fair was an ukpik, which is an Arctic owl. Um, and the Canadian pavilion featured some Inuit art and murals. And the restaurant in the Canada pavilion was called Tundra, if that counts for anything. That seems pretty thin. Yeah. And and there was no real Métis presence that I could find in my research, but I'm sure Métis people were involved in the Indian Pavilion. And the other thing is Expo 67, it didn't really, and it doesn't really have much archived. It's really hard to find things. Um, it was pretty tricky. And, you know, a lot of people that I spoke with, they, they actually mentioned that fact. But that just like, maybe I'm just saying that to like pat myself on the back for doing the research because it was hard. <laughs> but let's continue on to the main attraction, the Indians of Canada Pavilion. Oh, wait, it's not here in the No, Canada it's not. Okay. No, no, it's not. It was treated as an independent pavilion. And so what does that mean exactly? Some industries and companies had their own pavilions. Companies like Kodak, they had a pavilion um, or those religious pavilions that I mentioned earlier. There was a Christian pavilion and a Judaism pavilion. That's interesting that there were religious pavilions. Um, hmm. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I think for Montreal, it's kind. Of, I think the thing that's fascinating to me, or like maybe not fascinating, but you can see why those two pavilions would be there mm. because there's a lot of French Catholics right. uh, in Quebec, and then also there's a large Jewish population in Montreal yeah. as well. Yeah, that makes sense. But I kind of like the idea of it having its own space. Definitely. But at the time of Expo, many people didn't. It felt far away and removed of, but not part of. But the Indian Pavilion had a really good view. It was, you know, right across from the St. Lawrence River. It looked towards downtown Montreal. And it was right beside the United Nations Pavilion. Um, but there were also pavilions for the provinces as well. So, you know, and some people have read some meaning into the layout of the Canada complex. You know, like, what province was the closest to the Canada Pavilion? Let me guess. New Brunswick. No, you're wrong. It was what? Ontario. <laughs> Ontario? Yeah. I can't even. I'm yeah. shocked. I mean, at Quebec was even further away. Um, oh, and no. then there was the, yeah, right. And there was, a, and I also read that there was like a tiny body of water that separated Quebec. <laughs> so it kind of had a bit of a moat. Uh, wow. Wow. Um, but again, that's like, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of reading into things. But I think people, you know, it would feel a way, I think, mm -hmm. if you were walking through that space. Fun fact. Um, I've heard that because the Indians of Canada Pavilion was close to the UN, there was some really, you know, interesting connections and encounters made there. People were making out in the UN. Is that what you're trying to say? Uh, you know what? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's hop off the mini rail and let's head towards the pavilion. You're really sticking hard to this convention, aren't you? <laughs> no. Oh, you let me no just idea. open the door, grab my purse, because it's 1967, and my cigarettes or cigarellos. I'm assuming I would smoke cigarellos if it's Yeah, don't forget your gloves. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so 
The actual pavilion was designed with an attempt to capture many different indigenous nations and perspectives, which was not an easy thing to do. And the planning stage of the pavilion was fraught with disagreements. I mean, I can kind of see why. It seems like a lot of people try and represent literally hundreds of different and distinct indigenous nations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming the government was involved possibly in this, which would make things even trickier. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a time when indigenous people were beginning to become more political and more people were moving to the cities and urban environments, and there was a greater visibility of Indigenous people in these settings. The centennial was a time of reflection for the country, and part of that reflection was on how badly it had been treating the original people of the land. Right. Yeah. So in 1961, the National Indian Council was created to act as an umbrella group to advocate for status and non-status First Nations and Métis people. So were they part of the planning? No, not in any official capacity, but they knew that, you know, that this event was coming and they wanted to make sure that they had their voices heard in the planning phase because this kind of thing wasn't new. You know, Indigenous people have been present at World's Fairs for a long time, but how they were present was the thing. So my cousin who... Wait, can I just stop you? You always involve cousins in every one of our episodes. (laughs) This is indigenous country, Leah. This is yeah. You have a large family. That's what I'm just discovering about you. There's a lot of cousins. We got okay, we all got okay. a lot of cousins. Okay, gotcha, okay. So gotcha. my cousin Tom, Tom Hill. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> he was involved at Expo 67 as an artist. But not only that, his grandfather was at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. And Tom, you know, he asked his grandfather why a group of Haudenosaunee men went down to St. Louis in 1904. And why they put on headdresses, because our folks, our people are Haudenosaunee, and we don't wear headdresses. And Tom's grandfather said, because that is what the audience wanted. Hmm. Wow. And trust me, I could go on about this forever. But there's this thing around events like this, you know, there's these things about performing identity for the masses. Right. I get that. You know, it think, it makes me think, like when you said um, St. Louis, that that fair is so iconic also because they had a lot of African people in, you know, human zoo exhibits, mm-hmm. the most famous being a Congolese man named Otabanga. The, his story is, is so heart-wrenching and long, but he ended up being held in a human zoo exhibit in the Bronx Zoo for years in the ape exhibit. Oh, God. And, um, you know, it's like so far away and not that far away. Like Mm -hmm. the Bronx Zoo Mm -hmm. actually, I think it was in, it was a couple years ago, put out an official apology to his family and his descendants. And, you know, it's a lot of, lot of stuff. So those, that unfortunately is also what I think of when I hear World Fair, because a lot of these early World Fairs were, you know, that kind of, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. human spectacle. If you're an indigenous performer, you make certain choices about how you present yourself to get the role or the gig. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. this stuff still exists and it's tied through all of this. I can see these connections. So, but back to the National Indian Council. So the reason that they pushed back, that I I think that they pushed back, was because they knew this history, right? They knew Mm. how indigenous bodies had been represented at events like this. And they wanted to make sure that they had some control over that. And I read that it was because the National Indian Council was so vocal about the Indian Pavilion 
that that's why it got its own space, why it got its own pavilion. Respect. Okay, I get it now. And it was because of this pushing that the Centennial Commission, which was the government-appointed group that oversaw the planning of Expo, decided that they had better bring some Indigenous community into the planning process in a real way. But government will be government, and Indian Affairs, the government branch that was in charge of all things at the pavilion, chose who should be on this Indigenous Advisory Committee, which is what it would be called. They picked whoever they liked. Nine people would make up the Indigenous Advisory Committee. And and that's not to say that, you know, they were all bad choices. Right. It's more about the process and the facade of looking like consultation without the real work of consultation. Yes, which sounds really familiar to me. Um, Also thrown into this planning mix was the Indian Affairs Expo Task Force. So you have Indian Affairs, the Indian Affairs Expo Task Force, uh, the National Indian Council and the Centennial Commission all pushing for their perspectives in the planning. With a shortened planning timeline. Yes. So, you know, you can see how this would be complicated. And the pavilion itself was attempting to represent so many different nations. It was really tricky to navigate. People had differing opinions about what should be included and how. And Indian Affairs really wanted to try to present a positive image of the relationship between Indigenous people and the government. And I can't imagine that went well. (laughs) I know, I almost laughed saying those words. Yeah, it didn't go well. This was the 60s, which was the decade of the 60s scoop. Right. This is when many Indigenous children were taken or scooped from their parents by child welfare authorities and placed in the homes of white strangers. There's a lot of story to unpack there. So if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to Finding Cleo, the amazing podcast by journalist Connie Walker. Yes, it's great. So this was also a time when residential schools were operating. And, of course, veterans um, who had come back from World War II had lost their treaty rights because they had become enfranchised. Right. And enfranchisement sounds like a good thing, but it would have actually meant you were giving up a lot of your rights. Uh, Yes. These men who signed up uh, to go and fight in the Canadian Army, they would have to become citizens, and that meant that they couldn't be Indigenous anymore, so they had to give up their treaty rights. So what you're saying is that it would have been really tricky to make a lot of what was going on look positive. Yeah. So Indian Affairs trying to make any of this look good was going to be difficult. And they quickly realized that they needed to undertake some real kind of consultation. And so they planned for four of them across the country. And these consultations, um, they were in communities and they asked people what they thought the pavilion should include. Also in these early planning stages, artists were selected to participate. And these artists were selected by Indian Affairs as well. So Indian Affairs was really all over this thing. Yes, but it's worth mentioning that, you know, some of the folks who are working with Indian Affairs were Indigenous. Right. So you would have had some people on the inside. Yes. And, you know, I found someone who has a really cool connection to Expo. His father, Russell Moses, worked for Indian Affairs and he worked for the Indian Pavilion at Expo. Sego Skanagawaga, Swadis Moses. My name's John Moses. I'm a member of the Delaware and Upper Mohawk bands at the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory near Brantford, Ontario. That's where both my parents were born and raised and where the majority of my extended family members continue to live and work. Myself, I live and work with the Department of Canadian Heritage here in Ottawa with my own family. So John's dad worked for the pavilion. 
Yes. Um, but he had a pretty amazing life before he, you know, took that position. He was a residential school survivor. He was a member of the Canadian Navy during the Korean War. He also worked with the Royal Canadian Air Force and then ended up working with Indian Affairs. Oh, and he worked at the CBC on the radio show Indian Magazine, which would morph into Native Land, which then morphed into Unreserved, the show I host. There had been a series of ongoing discussions and was finally decided that there would be a separate standalone Indians of Canada pavilion as part of the Canadian presence at Expo. And uh, he was initially brought on as a public relations officer for the pavilion, but by the time Expo opened and uh, throughout its duration, he was actually the Deputy Commissioner General at the Indians of Canada pavilion. I think he enjoyed the process overall. He met and worked with a number of very interesting people from across the country, including the um, the group of leading Indigenous artists of that era who were specially commissioned to provide artworks for the pavilion. So there's a number of whom later on became the Indian Group of Seven, as they were known. So it was quite an influential group if you're looking at the overall history of the you know contemporary Indigenous art history of Canada. Yes, the artists who were brought in to work on the pavilion were pretty amazing. You know, this moment, the moment of the Indian pavilion, is considered huge in terms of Indigenous art history. The artists that were included at the pavilion, they were some of the best around, and some would become massively influential on the Indigenous art world and the art world in general. John mentioned George Clutzi, uh, Noel Wootany, Gerald Tailfeathers, uh, Dakota Ross Woods, Alex Janvier, Norval Morisot, assisted by Carl Ray, Francis Kajich, Jean-Marie Gros-Louis, and my cousin, Tom Hill. Cool. Yeah, yeah. We know your cousin. Hey, my cousin's awesome. Okay, I got a lot of cousins, <laughs> and they're all awesome. We're not doing a podcast about your cousins, by the way. <laughs> We're not doing an episode just oh, like man. called, like, The Secret Life of Phelan's Cousins. <laughs> I don't think I want to know about their secret lives. <laughs> Actually, now that I say that, that I'm like, that would be a good episode. <laughs> no. Okay, so my my cousin, Tom, um, you know, he was included in this group of artists that were doing pretty amazing stuff. They painted these massive works of art on the exterior of the pavilion um, and surrounding the pavilion. Um, they were these giant... Uh, brown sort of panels that were nine feet tall. Uh, Noel Wootany, who was a Plains Cree, he was from Saskatchewan, he did a lot of work based in beaded floral work. So he did something inspired by that. Tom Hill, my cousin. Um, he created um, a work based on the Haudenosaunee Tree of Peace. Norvell Morisot, who is Anishinaabe, and he's often called the Picasso of the North, he worked on a piece called Earth Mother with her children. And the painting depicted bear cubs being nursed by Mother Earth. The organizers were kind of freaked out by the image and they asked Norvell to censor it and he declined. And instead, he instead of altering the image, he was like, "Mm, no, thanks. And he walked away from the commission. um, And so he had his friend Carl Ray finish the work for him. Wow. Good for him. But that's so ridiculous that they asked. This was, you know, this was Expo. Boobs weren't for feeding. Sure, sure, sure. Not in the 60s. Yeah. So Norvell Morso, he's a huge name. Um, If you don't know who he is, just Google his name um, and you will see his work and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know who that is because his work is is so well known. Yeah. Um, But it was actually through that commission for Expo 67 that he hooked up with a gallery um, that would program his first international exhibition. So 
if he didn't take that gig and maybe get fired from that gig or, sorry, walk away from that gig, then maybe he wouldn't have had that international exhibition. Wow, good for him. I wanted to ask John about the impact of Expo on the Indigenous art world. Most of my working life has been within the federal museums and heritage field. And, um, you know, there's so much talk these days about decolonizing and indigenizing and unsettling Canadian museum and gallery spaces. And so it's been my contention that uh, the Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo 67 was really ground zero for all of that. As they say, the pavilion was a real watershed in indigenous self-representation before national and global audiences and in a sense everything that um, you know so many of us who are indigenous and who are working within the museums and gallery field everything that we're doing right now in a sense is an attempt to regain that degree of cultural sovereignty that was manifested at the uh, Indians of Canada Pavilion at Expo. Right so this would have been the first time that really Indigenous people had a say over how they were seen by the world. Yes. So there's all these cool artists and, you know, they're gathered and planning is underway. But, you know, there were still a lot of tensions going on. Leah, let's head to the front of the pavilion and we can talk about the actual building and one of its main features, a totem pole. Okay, I I do want to do that, but I Mm -hmm. gotta go to the bathroom. I'll be back in one sec. I'll just wait here. I'll be over here. I just wanted to take a break to tell you about another CBC podcast I think you might like. It's called Death in Cryptoland. It's a true story about a crypto tycoon, his secret past, his sudden demise, and an online sleuth's obsession to unravel the truth behind his mysterious company. You can check it out on the same thing that you're listening to this on or on CBC Listen. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. You will not believe what happened when you were gone. (laughs) Clowns. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Clowns. Okay, well, I want to hear about this totem pole. So as we approach the Indians of Canada Pavilion, the first thing that you would have seen was a totem pole. And the design process of this totem pole was pretty bumbly as well. The Indian Affairs Bureau asked a renowned Haida artist, Bill Reed. Um, I'm not sure if you know him, but Bill Reed, he's very well known. Um, they asked him to carve a totem pole. But Indian Affairs wanted something of a kind of made up totem pole, you know, one that was generic and it made no sense to Bill Reed. He wrote to Indian Affairs saying, If you hire a Haida carver, you get a Haida pole. If you hire a Coquitlet carver, you get a Coquitlet pole. There are no simian carvers. If you want a bastard pole, draw your own conclusions. In the end, Coquitlet father and son and master carvers, Henry and Tony Hunt, were selected to carve a pole. And it did incorporate some of the designs that Indian Affairs wanted. The pavilion itself was a teepee-like structure. It had six sides, and it stood about 100 feet tall. So linked to this teepee-like building, there were smaller buildings that represented other traditional Indigenous homes. So the first things people would see would be a teepee and a totem pole. Yes, and... You know, although those are rooted in Indigenous cultures, those two things have been pretty big targets for bastardization by mainstream culture. Like, you know, if you've ever driven to a cottage or a cabin on the highway. Right. It makes me think about those like highway, quote unquote, trading posts. Yes. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, but what from what I've read, the architect knew this. He knew what a teepee 
would represent to the general public and that they would understand something of what that building was and it would invite them in. Okay, Leah, let's head inside. So welcome inside the Indian Pavilion at Expo 67. Okay, now truthfully, if we were entering here, you would be greeted by an Indigenous hostess. Well, you're kind of that, aren't you? Like, this I know, is what we've but been I, doing. <laughs> I don't, kind of, yes, but I don't have the cool outfit. So what would have these hostesses done? Like, what was the job, essentially? Well, all pavilions had their own hostesses, and they were all young, pretty women. It was almost touted as a reason to go, you know, go see all the pretty girls from across the world. That's gross. For the Indian Pavilion, there was a nationwide call for young Indigenous women to apply to be hostesses. Women from across the country would be chosen, all representing different nations and regions. Okay, and who were they? Their names were Janice Lawrence, Marie Knockwood, Philomene Desterre, Dolores Delorme, Delphine Blackhorse, Diane Dibo, Alice Marchand, Velma Robinson, Janet Morris, Vina Starr, Doreen Stevenson, Stella Shabbat, Addie Tabak, and Barbara Wilson. Barbara Wilson, as in the Barbara Wilson we had on the Indian Film Crew episode. Yes, I spoke to Barbara to get her impressions of what Expo 67 was like for her. Barbara Wilson. Di Auga Eji, Nina di Nanga Eji, Stawas Heidegai, Gal Udi Ki Katam, Inel Ilnagai, Sta U Eji, Niswes Hano di Hatka, Kiga Ka, Simon di Chinga Eji, Digi Tada, seventy seven Ka. So what I've told you is my Haida name is Ki Ilgers. My English name is Barbara Wilson. I was really curious about what the training was like to be a hostess at Expo 67. We had the Indian Affairs training that told us about Canada's history. But what happened in there was they also gave us the opportunity to write about our own nations. So there was a little bit of personalizing in it. The original intent was to send us down to Quebec for a year, and we were to learn French. We were to be fluent in French before we got into Expo. And then things kept happening. I imagine it was political. I left Haidegwai January the 3rd of 67. I was in Vancouver for, I think, three or four days. And then we flew to Montreal and our training started almost right away. We actually had a model, Fabienne, who taught us modeling, makeup. We learned makeup um, as if we didn't know how already. We had Monsieur Figuet who taught us French and we were cheeky as hell with him. The poor kid was, I mean, he was a young man and you could imagine having First Nations women who have a sense of humor and like to tease, um, he would be absolutely blushing all the time because we'd ask him these questions and and we'd tell him, well, we're practicing our French, you know, and he would be blush, blush, blush. So we did modeling, French, history, public speaking, 
learning how to behave ourselves, I guess, is the best way to call it. Can I just say I love her? Yes, you can, because I do too. So these hostesses, they were responsible for touring guests around the pavilion and explaining the exhibits inside. And these exhibits were not sugar-coated. You know, there was a lot of truth inside the Indian pavilion. But we will have to save that for next time. Oh, uh, we haven't even made it inside. <laughs> I know, I know. But there is so much more story to tell. All right, I'm going to go get some popcorn then. Do you want to see this clown? Yes, I do. No, I do. don't. <laughs> I've always wanted to punch a clown. Let's do it. Let's go to the Jamaica Pavilion. Yes. And, and then, then punch a clown. <laughs> and then we're going to find a clown. <laughs> you know we're going to get angry letters from people. <laughs> the clowns. The clowns. I trained for 18 years at Lecoq, and you don't know. <laughs> we work in theater. We do know clowns. I do know. <laughs> The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Our producer is TK Matunda, and our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. The digital producer of CBC Podcast is Fabiola Melendez Carletti. Senior producer is Tina Verma, and executive producer is RF Narani. You can find us on social media at The Secret Life of Canada, and our email is secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.